Thanks, Jerry, for leading us this morning in worship. Just one announcement that uh, was given to me right before, uh, well, during the middle of the service. Um, for you, the senior adults, there is no uh, senior adult trip this Saturday. It will be on the 30th, so please mark that according in your calendar. So no uh, senior adult trip this Saturday, but it will be on the 30th. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we start this morning's message. God, you are a good God, you are a kind God, you are a loving God, a gracious God. You are the only God that can transform us to bring us into newness of life. And so I pray that would be true for each and every one of us this morning. The reality is we need you wherever we are in our journey with you. If we know you, we need you to continue on to do the work in our hearts to bring more and more sanctification. If we do not know you, Lord Jesus, we need you to uh, pull us uh, out of the mire and out of the clay to redeem us. And so I pray that for every one of us, that none of us would come in this morning and leave the same way. We'd be transformed by the reading of your word and the renewal of our minds and hearts. So we give you this morning, have all the praise, honor, and glory. Amen. I heard there's an important uh, game at 12 o'clock, so I'll try to get us out of here at 12, uh, at 11.55. Um, so good luck. Now, we'll, we'll get you to uh, the Tennessee game. As you know, it's uh, March Madness, uh, one of the sweetest times of the year for any basketball fan, any probably any sports fan. Uh, this week, I was listening and heard this story, and I thought, this is so applicable for where we're at in our text. It was said about Lou Alcindor, the great um, uh, Abdul-Jabbar, uh, the great center. He made uh, the All-Star game 19 seasons uh, in, in the NBA. He was probably the greatest high school basketball player ever to come out of high school. He was in uh, New York City and went all the way to the West Coast. And so he was a phenomenal basketball player. And what was said, uh, Lou Alcindor said this about the great John Wooden. Uh, if you know anything about John Wooden, he was a godly man, but he was probably, he was, he was voted as the greatest coach of the last hundred years, of any coach, not just basketball coach, but any coach over the last hundred years. What he did was he took uh, a little-known school, UCLA, and made him into a powerhouse. And over a, a few, in a, in a decade, he had won seven straight um, titles, which is unprecedented. We probably will never see that again. Seven straight Division I basketball titles, ten over the course of his uh, career. That's a lot of championships. But what it said about, what, what Lou Alcindor said about the great John Wooden was this. The very first day of practice. Um, it's called the shoes and socks drill. So he gathered all these recruits from around the nation and pulled them in and said, we need to do something. He said, I want all of you now to take your shoes and socks off. And all the players kind of looked at Coach Wooden like, man, you're out of your mind. And he said to each one of them, well, if you don't want to do that, you can get back on the plane and go home. We do things one way here at UCLA. So take all your shoes and socks off. You sit along the bench, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to put your shoes and socks back on. I gave him that look like, man, we, we put our shoes and socks on since we were well before elementary school. We know how to put shoes and socks on. He said, I want to teach you how to put shoes and socks on the proper way. So one by one, each teammate of Lou Alcindor put their shoes and socks on and John Wooden went through the whole team 
to make sure they knew how to put their shoes and socks on. He said, what I want you to do, I want you to pull your socks on, I want you to pull them on super tight. There's no wrinkles. You see, if you have wrinkles in your socks, you'll get blisters. And then I want to teach you how to put your shoes on properly and tie your shoes properly because if you get a if you get an injury because you don't have the proper shoes tied right and your socks put on right then then your minutes are going to decrease and if your minutes decrease you hurt the entire team and so he said this if you know how to put your shoes and socks on then we can go to the next lesson but if you can't put your shoes and socks on properly then we got problems from the get-go he said it's about the foundations of basketball. And you you know, we think about the foundations of basketball. This is what they taught us in school was beef. Balance, eyes, elbow in, follow through. So that's where we start. But John Wooden, the greatest coach ever, where did he start with the shoes and socks? Because he knew if they don't put their shoes on right, then their foundation is wrong. If their foundation is wrong, then everyone on the team is going to suffer from one player getting hurt. I was thinking about that according to this text. This morning, what the Apostle Paul is going to do with young Timothy is take him all the way back to the foundations of the church. He's going to tell him this is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is crucial in the life of the church, is it not? So he, he said, all this thing I've been teaching you, remember he, what he's been teaching them. We've got to fight the good fight of the faith. We need to understand we've got to pray for unbelievers. We've got to pray for us as the believers. We've got to set women in order and men in order. We've got to set elders in order and deacons in order. We've got to do the whole thing to make the church a place of godliness. But then right in the middle of the book, literally, chapter 3, he says this. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the cornerstone of the church. If we, the church, don't understand this, then everything else in the church will fall to pieces. And so he says, this is it. He says this in verse 15. This is how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So everything from this book, Everything in this whole book rides on this three verses. The mystery of godliness. I hope you're here this morning and I hope you come to church not to be entertained, not for just music, but you come hoping that you'll leave with a little bit more of godliness. And so the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, his apprentice, the church planner in Ephesus, Hey, this is how you are to live a life of godliness. He tells us three things. We'll look at three things this morning in this text. The master of the church. The mission of the church. And the message of the church. Those three points come directly from a a theologian out in California, John MacArthur. So I'm borrowing those three topics. Uh, The rest is mine. But those three topics, I thought... Man, he was masterful on how he put this passage in order. So let's look first about this great mystery of godliness. Where does it start? We must understand it starts with the master of the church. Let's read verse 14 and 15. It says this young to young Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things 
so that if I don't come or if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying to Timothy, hey, I really have this desire to come to you. I have a desire to be with you in Ephesus. I have a desire to to teach you one-on-one, face-to-face. But if I don't, if I'm unable to, if the Lord prevents me to do that, I'm writing these things so that you will have no excuse how not to live a life of godliness and how the church does not have an excuse not to live a life of godliness. And then he says, but here's where the life of godliness starts. It must start with us understanding first what it means to be the household of God. That's the word he used. He says, I do not delay, but I, I'm teaching you th- these things so you know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. What does he mean by the household of God? What the Apostle Paul is talking about is not a building. He's not talking about the house of God, meaning the building of God. He's talking about we individually as believers in Christ make up the household of God. How do we know this? Jesus himself told us this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. He says when what? One or two or three of you are gathered in what? My name. Where is he? He's with us. And so it's not about a building that God resides in, but it's about a people of God that God resides in. God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son is here in our midst right now. Do we know that to be true? It's not because we came to Him, but we gathered with one another that makes the household of God. God is not in this building if no one is in this building. Can I say that again? God is not in here like he was back in the Old Testament in the temple or in the tent of meetings. That's where God in the Old Testament resided. But what does the Apostle Paul tell us? Now we are the human temple or the tent of God which God resides in. And so when we come together, the house of God is us. So we gather, we go outside, we're still the household of God. Do we believe that to be true? Because if we believe that God resides in us, then everything in our life will be different. That we don't have to come to God, but we go with God because we go wherever we go, God goes with us. And then he says this, that's the household of God. And I love what he says, which is the church. And look what he says about it. Of what? The who? The living God. We serve a living God. He's saying the household of God, we do not serve a God that is dead, but we serve a living, ongoing, alive God that resides with us. That is the master of the house of God. It's not us, but it's the living God. And because the living God now resides in us, we have life and have life to the full, as Jesus says in John 10, 10. So that's the master of the church. And now he says, as the church, with God being the head of the church, this is how, and this is our mission. What's the mission of the church? We are to behave in a certain way in the church, and we must live on mission with what God has called us to. What is the mission of God for us as the church? He says it this way. This is the mission of the church, that we are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What do those two words 
mean? The mission of the church is to be a, a pillar and a buttress. The word pillar has to do with holding something up. So we, the church, are the pillar that we hold something up. What are we to hold up? The truth. And then he says the buttress. If, if you want to know what the buttress means, it's twofold. It means the foundation, and it also means the support system. Have you ever seen an old, old, old cathedral or old architecture? They had these huge, huge, massive buildings. But along the outside of the building were what they would call buttress. And so there were these framework things that were holding the main uh, building up. They were supporting the main building. And so the Apostle Paul to young Timothy says, you must be the foundation, you, you must be the pillars, and you must be the support system. Of what? What does it say in the text? Say it out loud with me. We are to be the pillar and buttress of what? The So we, the people of God, the church of God, are to hold this thing up and we are to support this thing. Like all of our lives as a church is to make sure this is proclaimed and seen to the nations. Like this is our support and we are supporting it and we are holding it up. The idea of pillar means this. If you've ever seen a pillar, it's not just to hold a building up. There's other pillars throughout the ancient world that they would put these massive things on top of so that the whole city could see it. So they'd build these pillars in the middle of the city and put the most important thing on top of the pillar so that the nations could see what was on top of the pillar. And so God is calling us to be His pillar for what? The truth. And so our lives individually and our lives as a church must be to do this always. And then we are to support this always. You see, because if we, the church, aren't holding and heralding and supporting this, everything else crumbles. This is the most important thing that we, the church, have and that we, the church, are to withhold. Anything else, the church will crumble. It doesn't matter how great our music is. It doesn't matter how great our fellowship is. It doesn't matter how great our preaching is. If our fellowship isn't rooted in this, our worship isn't rooted in this, and our preaching isn't rooted in this, then what happens? Everything will what? Crumble and fall to pieces. This is our foundation. Is that true for your life? Is this the thing that you herald and hold and support more than any other thing in your life? When your wife when your husband, when your children, when your job, when your own life, is everything in your life dictated and centered out of this? Because if not, the promise is this. You will fall to pieces. And if you fall to pieces as a believer, and you fall to pieces, 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 and, fall to pieces, and I fall to pieces, then what happens to the church? We crumble. We fall to pieces. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Corinthians, that we are one body and one body in Christ. And when one suffers, 
We all suffer. Do we believe that? We have people that are suffering in our church this morning. We must rally around them. And what we rally around them with is this and this alone. Because this will be the thing that puts their lives back together. Amen? So blew through the first two. And then he says this. This is the master of the church. This is the mission of the church. It's to proclaim the truth. We are to proclaim the truth. And then he says this. This is the message of the church. You know, for centuries, God's people have been a confessional people. Meaning that they hold to confession. If you remember back in Deuteronomy, uh, the, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. That, that was a confession that the people of God held to and they recited it daily. And, and then you go throughout the New Testament. There was confessions that the people of God held to. One of our confessions is this, that the Apostles' Creed. That's a confession. That's something that we rally around, that we hold to, that we believe, that we would say, this confession stamps who we are as believers. If you want to know who we are, this confession says who we are. Well, many theologians believe this is one of the very first New Testament confessions. And if what we did for the rest of our days as a church would recite these this one verse over and over and over again, and we really believe this one verse, I believe our whole life would change and the life of our church would change if we held to this confession. They made this confession into a hymn, and it's an old, old hymn, one of the first hymns of the New Testament, many of the scholars say. And so what is the confession? What is the hymn? What are they singing? What are they proclaiming with their lives? This is the confession. I'll read it again. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taking up to glory. There's six confessions within the one confession. And I want to go through those six confessions with us today. The first one, I want to see this. Where does the confession start what's the first word in the confession this is classroom participation which means you have to open your bibles and read chapter uh, 3 verse 16 the very first word of the confession is what let's say it all together he he look where the confession starts the confession doesn't start with us the confession doesn't start with me. The confession doesn't start with the church. Where does the confession start? He. Who is the he in the passage? Jesus. Our confession must always start with Christ and Christ alone. He is the linchpin that holds everything together for us. And it says he was made manifested in the flesh. What is he talking about? It's talking about the incarnation. That God the Son pulled on skin and came and dwelt among us. That He, the God, the truly God and truly man, came to be just like us. 
that He was made manifested in the flesh, that He was a real person. You see, because if He didn't become flesh, then the whole promises about the Old Testament would have never come true. Right, Isaiah 52 and 53, that, that would have been a promise that would not have come true unless God pulled on skin and became flesh. He would never have been the servant, the suffering servant, unless he was made into flesh like us. And so the first confession is this. Do you believe and do I believe, does the church believe, that God sent his only son in the flesh for us? That is the ultimate of all confessions. You see, that is the confession that separates us from every other religion. That God became flesh and dwelt among his people. No other religion claims that but ours. And so do we believe as a church, as a person of God, the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? And then it says this. Do we believe that he was vindicated by the Spirit? You may be thinking to yourself, what does that mean? What does it mean to be vindicated by the Spirit? It means to be justified by the Spirit. It means this. The first part is we see God the Father and God the Son in the Incarnation. Now the next part pulls in God the Holy Spirit. He talks already in the first two parts of our confession that we serve a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Again, that is another thing about our faith that separates us from every other religion. That we have three gods and those three gods make one God. I can't fully explain it. My brain about pops everything I think about the Trinity. Truly God, truly man, truly God and truly man, the Holy Spirit, God the Father. But that's our confession. That there's three gods and yet it's one God. And then he says this, it was vindicated by the Spirit. Meaning it was justified by the Spirit. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteousness for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death and in flesh, being made alive where? In what? The Spirit. So Christ, Jesus, became flesh, and where was His power given to Him? Not in and of Himself, not even of God the Father, but where? God the Spirit. God the Spirit is the one that testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what makes Jesus so powerful is the Holy Spirit that resided in Jesus. If you remember when, uh, the, when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? The Holy Spirit descended on to him. And so the Holy Spirit verified who Jesus was. Another text is this, Romans 1, 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God. And in the power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is our Lord. That verse is saying, without the Holy Spirit, there is no resurrection. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no resurrection. It was the Holy Spirit that entered into the tomb, into Christ, that raised Christ from the dead. And so, the, 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 when it says this, that He's vindicated by the Spirit, it was the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Do we believe that? Well, here's the other part. Do you believe that same Holy Spirit resides in you? Do you do you see that? Do we understand that? 
the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it said this about the Holy Spirit. He now lives in you and in me. So therefore, the Holy Spirit vindicates you and I. Like when we stand before the Holy Judge with Christ Jesus, His blood on us, the vindication from the Holy Spirit is also speaking on our behalf before the Holy God, not just Jesus Christ Himself. Powerful. So in essence, we have two defense attorneys. That's the second thing. The third thing is said this, that he was, it was seen by the angels. Again, this is a testimony about who Jesus is from the heavenly beings. If you remember about the angels, where did the angels begin to testify about who Jesus was? way back before Christ was ever born. Remember who showed up to Mary and said to Mary, hey, you will be with the holy God, an angel. Who was it that went and spoke to the shepherds and started speaking on behalf of God the Father about who Jesus was? It was the angels who showed up with uh, Jesus to lead him and when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Who ministered to Jesus? The angels. Who was it that was with Jesus when he was in the garden crying out to a holy God and was at the point of shedding blood through his sweat? Who ministered to him then? It was the angels. Who was it that showed up at the tomb when Jesus was laying in the tomb? It was the angels. So the angels are saying to us, hey, not only was God there, but we saw it ourselves. The angels, the heavenly beings says, this is who Jesus really is. We promise. We've seen him. So again, it gives testimony who Christ Jesus, our Lord, is. And then lastly, who was it at the ascension in Acts chapter 1 that proclaimed this is the Son of God. It was the angels. And what did these angels, what did Jesus come and what happened? It says this, that it was proclaimed among the nations. After the ascension is where evangelism took place. What were they evangelizing? They were evangelizing the good news about the Holy God had come in the incarnation, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, and was ascended back into heaven. And, the, and we now, through the church, we proclaim the testimony of who Jesus is through His life, death, and resurrection. He's saying to us, we the church, we must hold to this, to this confession. Will we be a church that confesses and proclaims to the world who Jesus is? Because once we proclaim among the nations what happens among the world, the next promise in our confession, what does it say? That once we proclaim among the nations, then what happens? The world believes. It's through our proclamation of who Christ is that the world believes. It's again found in Romans chapter 10. How beautiful are the feet who bring the good news. How will they ever believe if no one's sent? Then we send you, the church sends you to proclaim the good news so that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be what? 
saved. And so whose responsibility is it to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world? It's ours, the church's. And what mean, that means is it's not mine, the church's. It's yours, the church. It's mine, the church. Remember, we make up the household of God. Every one of us who claims to be a believer is the church of God. So everyone in this place that claims to be a believer must what? Proclaim the gospel message to a lost and dying world. Why? So that they will come to believe in Him who they had not believed the same way that you and I did because someone proclaimed the gospel message to you. And then he says this. And the last one. And this separates us again from every other religion. Twofold, I believe, in this text. He was taking up into glory. That's the ascension, but I also believe it is talking about his coming, his next coming. That's what separates us. That we must be a church that believes the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming. He is going to call all of his back to himself through the second coming. You see, without the second coming, when you die and are buried in a, in a tomb, without the promise of his returning and drawing you to himself, we're screwed. But it's because the mighty King Jesus went and sits on the throne of God and is reigning on the throne of God and has made the promise, I am going to return. And how does he return? We see it in Revelation. He returns in the fullness of his glory. So not only was he taken up into glory, but he'll come back in his glory. And I wonder, church, for us this morning, the same way that the Apostle Paul is telling young Timothy, this must be our confession. The gospel truth must be our confession. What is the gospel truth? The gospel truth is this simply. That there is the holiness of God. We see that in the text. Because the holiness of God says something about me. God's holiness reveals what? My sinfulness. And my sinfulness says to me, I cannot get to Christ. I cannot get to God. But what this passage says, my way to the holiness of God comes through what? God Himself becoming the incarnation for me. And then the Holy Spirit bringing Christ back from the dead and therefore He resides in me. And now the Holy Spirit testifies to God the Father on my behalf in a holy courtroom that says, oh yeah, yeah, He was this, but now He's this. And He's not this because of Himself. He's this because of the finished work of what Christ did on the cross and His powerful resurrection. Do we believe that, church? And if we believe that, does that compel us to a lost and dying world? You, you see, I've said this from this pulpit many times. Here's what we must teach about God. We can talk about God's love all day. We can talk about God's kindness all day. We can talk about God's graciousness and faithfulness all day. But if the church does not talk about God's wrath, then the world around us is in trouble. 
You see, it's God's wrath that people must be saved from. Not God's love. Not God's grace. God's, not God's faithfulness. But it's the wrath of God that the people far from Him must be saved from. So we have to talk to people about there is a holy God and His holiness. He demands, He demands a payment for our sin. For the wages of sin is what? Death. So God and His holiness and His righteousness and in His wrath demands a payment for the sins of the world. So we've got to talk about God's wrath. But as much as we talk about God's wrath, we must talk about God's justification through Christ and Christ alone. It's Christ who justifies us. Remember where the confession started. It didn't start with my confession. It didn't start with my forgiveness. It didn't start with me walking an aisle. It didn't start with me praying a prayer. It didn't start with anything about me. Where does it start? He. And so we must talk to people about the one who justifies. There's nothing in yourself that can justify you. There's not enough good works. There's not enough good obedience. There's not enough anything in you that can justify you before a holy God. Your justification comes through Christ in Christ alone. And we must tell the lost and dying world there is the wrath of God, but there's the justification through Christ and Christ alone. And that's what He came to live so that you wouldn't face the wrath of God. That's our confession. That's why we hold the truth of God up. This is our foundation. But I wonder, church, as much as we know that, do we trust and believe that? Is this just a book we read? Or is this the very words of God to give us life and hope and courage and boldness and strength? My challenge to us is always going to be do we get into God's word daily? And do we herald and hold this as this confession says? And it all starts where? With the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Do we, as a church, do you, as an individual, confess this confession in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? Let me read that again in closing. God, this is our confession. That Jesus was made manifest in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. God, I pray that would be our confession. I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, their justifier, that today would be the day that you would draw them to this yourself.